0: Okay, here we go, this little piggy. So we're opening here in front of the Iceberg Lounge, and uh, if that doesn't give you enough of a clue that we're in Gotham, the red sky should tip you off. But uh, the Iceberg Lounge is the uh, the club owned by the Penguin, and so even though um, they weren't allowed to use Batman villains, they were allowed to have... That building in there, I guess, uh, embargoes don't cover buildings. And, uh, coming out of the club just a second ago with a, uh, a redhead on his arm was the, uh, the manager from Torch Song back in the new Batman Adventures. I suppose they were just reusing the character model there, but there's one more little, uh, little treat for old-time Batman fans. As if being back in Gotham itself wasn't, uh, wasn't cool enough. So this is the first episode to really confront the uh the issue of uh, Batman and Wonder Woman's relationship. It was really made explicit uh not that kind of explicit but the uh explicit meaning obvious uh back in kid stuff uh, in the previous episode when uh when the other characters started commenting on it but uh, this is the first episode that actually tackles it head on and uh and attempts some sort of resolution and uh, and so it's notable. Uh for that reason and it's also notable because it introduces here Cersei, whom whom I'll talk a little bit about later. Uh the show didn't trot out many Wonder Woman villains. Uh Cheetah and Ares and Hades were uh really the only other big ones, and Giganta too, I suppose. But um a lot of her other villains from the comics like uh Doctor Psycho and Silver Swan and characters like that weren't uh, weren't used. But we did get Cersei, and she came off quite well. And it's been remarked that she was really used more of a mixer Spitlick uh, type character for Wonder Woman than an actual true villainess. She's really more of an imp that's interested in tormenting Wonder Woman and and uh, causing her psychological hardship, as opposed to out and out killing her. And so, in that respect, is more similar to uh, Mister Mixie Spitlick or uh, or Batmite for the comic fans who know who Batmite is. But uh, in terms of the mission statement for this episode, um, they went in knowing that they wanted Batman to sing, and uh, Andrea Romano has said that ever since back in 1991 when they started making Batman, the animated series, they always wanted to have a musical Batman episode because it was known to them from the very beginning that Kevin Conroy was an excellent singer, and so they always wanted to find uh, some way of showcasing that and uh the only time they were able to sort of work that in was in uh Batman Beyond's Out of the Past when they had Kevin Conroy do the uh the voice of the actor playing Batman in the musical at the beginning of this episode uh, of the episode uh singing the superstitious cowardly lot song but this is really the first time they are able to work the actual Batman singing into an episode and I'll talk a bit about uh, later on how I feel it came off. They actually tried to trick us a bit. Uh, The logline for this episode that was released on the internet well before it aired mentioned musical mayhem. And some people thought, well, does that mean the characters are going to be singing? Is this going to be like a musical episode? Because everybody knew that Bruce Tim was a big uh, Joss Whedon fan, and and based on stuff that happened in uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, there was uh, quite a bit of singing some people thought this episode would be the one where they finally trotted out that uh, that type of story, uh, but Bruce Tim tried to quell the rumors by saying that perhaps what the logline meant to say was magical mayhem, not musical mayhem, and so that sort of comforted people and and made them think that perhaps this was going to be like a, a real an episode that that dealt in a serious way with Greek mythology and so on, which it is in some ways, but not. It couldn't really be accused of doing so in a serious way, so Bruce Tim tried to misdirect the fans in that respect and uh, and largely succeeded. But uh, when people saw Cersei singing later on in the episode, I think they started to clue in that what he was trying to do and that what might be coming up was actually coming up, but it was still a valiant effort. So here we have Jennifer Hale as Zatanna. Jennifer Hale also plays uh, Killer Frost, Giganta, Dr. Fate's Wife Inza, the uh, the reporter Soroya Bashir, and uh, many incidental characters. Uh, she did not voice Zatanna in her appearance in the uh, eponymously titled episode of Batman, the animated series. Uh, an actress named Julie Brown voiced her there. Zatanna also appeared in uh, some of the Gotham Girls webisodes, so uh, so that's something else you can check out if you want to see more animated Zatanna. Paul Dini is a huge Zatanna fan, and they mention this on the uh, on the official commentary. I don't know what he he loves about the character so much. I mean, she's a great character, and everybody likes her. I don't know why her, especially that he's really keyed in on, but uh, but there is does seem to be a lot of affection there. He wrote the episode Zatanna back in Batman, and now he wrote, he wrote this one. And uh, as they hint at in uh, in the official commentary, when they mention that Paul Dini basically married Zatanna, what they mean is the, he ended up marrying a, a stage magician, an illusionist, named uh, Misty Lee, I believe her name is. And she actually, in her full regalia, does look remarkably like Zatanna. So, fate plays... Funny tricks on you sometimes. So here, as we segue into Cersei's musical number, I'll give you a bit of background on Cersei. Uh, Even though she's basically, I I would say she's probably maybe the number two or number three uh, big-time Wonder Woman villain in the comics, second perhaps only to uh, Ares and Cheetah. She uh, she didn't make her debut until relatively recently, unlike those two characters, which date way back to the golden age, in one form or another. Uh, Cersei didn't make her comic book debut until 1983, and it wasn't until after the Crisis, a few years later, that she really took on her m- more recognizable and more popular uh, form in the comics. But she's uh, her her history as a Wonder Woman villain doesn't even span 25 years, which is not very long considering the long history of these characters. Uh, She does, of course, have roots in Greek mythology, uh, specifically the Odyssey, wherein um, Odysseus, on his travels and attempting to get back to his his home in Ithaca, uh, his ship docked at, uh, at Circe's island, and he sent some of his men forth to, to scout it out, and Circe came upon them and took them into her home and fed them. But she had laced her meal with magic potions, as was her wont, and transformed them all into animals, which is her modus operandi. And uh, when Odysseus heard of this, he took steps to protect himself against the magic potions, such that when Circe tried to pull the same trick on him, he was immune and Circe was so impressed with the uh, resourcefulness and bravery of this hero Odysseus that she fell in love with him. And the two of them became lovers and stayed together for over a year, and she bore him several children, at least one according to different versions of the story. And after roughly a year, uh, she helped him uh, embark on the next leg of his journey back to his home in Ithaca so that's uh, basically Cersei's uh story from the comics and so the the trope of her turning uh turning people into animals although uh, mythologically speaking she would normally only turn men into animals although here she turns wonder woman into an animal um that's from the mythology as is her uh her magical bent and uh, I suppose if you want to look at it in a certain way, the fact that she was not quite bad, not quite good, in the uh, in the mythology, t- kind of ties into her her uh, behavior here, where she seems more mischievous than evil, and at the end uh, lifts her spell on Wonder Woman, even though she's under no real obligation to do so. I want to talk about Satana a bit uh, also, but since this scene is going to introduce bawana Beast, I'll uh, I'll talk about him first. Uh, but Wannabies first appeared in Showcase number 55 19, in uh, in 1967, so basically a 40-year-old character. Um, but even though he was introduced way back in 1967, he didn't appear again, he didn't have his second appearance, until the crisis, almost 20 years later. So uh, the character didn't catch on, he didn't set the world on fire initially, and truth be told, never really did. But... Uh, only appeared twice in the span of 20 years. His, uh, his story was basically that he was, uh, a big game hunter named, uh, well, his real name escapes me at the moment, uh, truth be told. But, uh, one way or another, he, uh, he had a gorilla companion named Juba. And, believe it or not, a hideout at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. So you begin to see how this, uh, How this character perhaps didn't catch on terribly quickly. Uh, So yeah, animal uh, ape companion and hideout at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And that was basically it. Uh, He was introduced, he didn't really appear too much after that until Grant Morrison dusted him off for his Animal Man series uh, and tried to uh, imbue the character with some seriousness. In, uh, In his appearances in Animal Man his powers were passed on to a uh, man from South Africa, a black man who decided to do away with the somewhat uh, racist sounding or at the very least uh, somewhat archaic name, Bawana Beast, and decided to uh, call himself Freedom Beast. And this new character is still around um, and Bawana Beast himself was, uh, was killed shortly after being succeeded by Freedom Beast, so uh, not a and not a terribly storied history. There appeared only a few times before being killed, and his successor hasn't appeared too much either, but has at least made a few appearances since then. Most recently in Jeff Johns' run on uh, Green Lantern. And uh, as for Zatanna, she first appeared in Hawkman number four in uh, 1964. So again, basically a uh, a child of the Silver Age, she was. She was the daughter of a Golden Age character named John Zatera, so her full name is Zatanna Zatera. Zatera was a character from the Golden Age who actually debuted alongside Superman in Action Comics Number 1. So he is just uh, the character Zatanna has just as long a history as Superman does. Zatanna was his daughter, was introduced in the Silver Age. The, uh, the story was that Zatara had conceived her with uh, a woman named Sindella, who belonged to the Homo Magi race, basically a, an ancient race of sorcerers. So although her father had really been basically a magician, she inherited this great magical power from her mother. And she became a superhero, much as her father had, and, uh, and joined the Justice League. And uh, and's proven a, a very enduring character, but uh, the most uh, groundbreaking story to use her recently would have to be Identity Crisis, wherein it was revealed that back during the good old Silver Age satellite days of the Justice League, she used to mind-wipe villains, which is to say that when any villain would get too close to discovering the League's secret identities she would erase that information from their mind. And she would even go so far as to alter the personalities of villains, such as she did to Dr. Light. And when Batman discovered what she was doing, she wiped his mind as well, to remove any memory of having discovered her uh, her scheme. Now, this all makes her out right to be very nefarious and villainous, but it doesn't really come off that way if you read the actual comic. Uh, anyone who hasn't read Identity Crisis would do well to pick it up, because it's really an excellent story written by uh, by mystery novelist Brad Meltzer. Basically, what she was trying to do was, uh, was preserve the integrity of the League and the safety of the League members and their families, but she basically got in over her head, and she's been trying to uh, redeem herself and make up for it ever since. Paul Dini, when he took over writing Detective Comics uh, only a few months ago, wasted very little time in trotting her out there, she appeared uh to aid Batman on a case he was working after only two or three uh issues. The idea that Bowana Beast can talk to animals is uh, is an invention of the cartoon. As they mention in the official commentary, his official comic book powers are the ability to uh to fuse animals together into sort of a chimera animal that uh has the attributes of both but that's sort of a a crazy power so actually he might have been able to talk to animals in the comics too maybe i'm uh maybe i'm wrong about that So in a second we're going to uh, we're going to see the amphitheater on Mykonos where Batman and Satana are going to confront Cersei. And uh, recently I took a trip to Europe and being in the area uh, of Mykonos, I said, "Well, I, I'm going to check out the amphitheater and see if it's anything like uh, like it was in this little piggy." But unless they were referring to a different amphitheater, it's really just ruins, uh, nowadays, and, uh, you can kind of tell from the ruins that even back in its heyday, it wasn't nearly as big as this episode makes it look, so whether they were using a bit of artistic license, or whether they, they got their facts confused, and they were talking about a different amphitheater, or if there is more than one amphitheater on Mykonos, and I just missed it, uh, I don't know, but, uh, anyone who decides to check it out if they're in the area might be a little disappointed it was uh it was very interesting and uh you know awe inspiring in the way that ruins often are but did not look anything like this going to get a bit of slapstick here in a second So this was Circe's only appearance. Um, the only other time she made sort of a quasi appearance was in uh, Dead Reckoning, when the uh, when Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman are flipping through the uh, the villain files in an attempt to determine uh, which sorceress Deadman encountered at Nanda Parbat. But uh, this was her only real appearance. Since we're going to get to the uh, the singing scene here in a second, I'll, I'll talk a bit about that. Uh, the problem people seem to have... I, I, should, I should preface that by saying, uh, as far as the reactions to this episode were concerned, you can really break uh, the reactions to the episode down into three categories. There were people who loved it and everything about it. They thought the humor was really funny. They thought the quirkiness was really endearing and that the singing worked and that it was you know, beautiful and, and worked really well within the context of the episode. Then there were the people who liked the episode and thought it was funny and cute and everything, but the singing completely turned them off at the end. And then the third category of people were those that thought the episode was just a complete farce, ridiculous failure, 100% all the way through. Um, I'd have to put myself in the second category initially, in that I was enjoying the episode up until uh, Batman started to sing, And that sort of took me out of the episode and and I sort of said, you know, what is this at first? But uh, much as was the case with Epilogue, when I was sort of taken aback at first, uh, as I watched the episode, uh, you know, repeatedly uh, in the future, and I start to look at it with perhaps a less critical eye and, and more towards, you know, having fun watching it, uh, the ending did grow on me, and and now I have no problem with it. But uh, at first, unless you're, you know, a really peculiar kind of Batman fan, the idea of him singing, is going to, throw you off a little bit at first. But so long as you sort of, check logic at the door, it's uh, it's a fun bit. And of course, Kevin Conroy is, and they're right about this. Kevin Conroy is a magnificent singer, and it's uh, he does a beautiful job singing the song. As for why uh, Cersei chooses this particular thing to make him do, um, since she's sort of being played as a as a mischievous character who's more interested in tormenting the characters uh, and embarrassing them and and doing things like that than than actually killing them, she sees what kind of man Batman is and how much he keeps everything inside and tries to keep even the people he cares about at arm's length and, and not to reveal too much of his feelings to them. She sees that this would be pretty much the worst thing she could do to him, short of killing him or killing the people he cares about, which would be to make him bare his soul and, and show his vulnerability. But in an ironic twist, he one-ups her and uh, and pulls it off magnificently and still manages to come off really cool. So he he beats her in that respect. And as for why she decides to lift the spell on Wonder Woman when she's really under no obligation to do so, other than the fact that she said she she said that she would Uh, it's been speculated by some that perhaps batman reminds her of her old love odysseus a normal human with no special magical powers who just through sheer resourcefulness and strength of will manages to accomplish whatever he sets out to do and uh, and that's really been one my one could say why wonder woman is attracted to him as well but this is perhaps what cersei sees in him and and what convinces her to lift her spell apparently there's a bit more to the song uh Kevin Conroy recorded a bit more than what we actually hear in the episode and they were going to include it as an extra on the DVD set but i think some rights issues might have uh might have come up and they weren't able to do that but i imagine we got to hear almost all of it once again the old uh the old cliche of wonder woman being bound and powerless i've talked about that before could this be the start of a terrifying planet of the pigs? Almost certainly, yes. <laughs> He's making that old man cry, cry there. <laughs> uh, that always makes me laugh. Now, this is a little weird when he says, Ricky, what's his name? Because really, the only famous singer with the first name Ricky is Ricky Martin. But... uh, can't imagine him ever singing a song like that. And so here, as we uh, as we wrap up the episode here, um, Paul Dini said that in his original ending, Batman simply brushed off what he had to do to get the spell lifted and didn't really want to tell Diana about it. But then they walked in on Zatanna showing, through a crystal ball, Batman's song to a bunch of other leaguers, including Elongated Man and Black Canary and Green Arrow and such. But apparently Bruce Tim wanted to sort of bookend the moment between Bruce and Diana at the beginning of the episode, and so they changed it to this, which works too. Interestingly enough, uh, the song Am I Blue, which is the song that Batman sings here, has a bit of a Batman-related history in that it was used in the background a couple of times in the uh, Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero direct-to-video movie. So there's that, uh, that's something to check out. Perhaps it was used there for the same reason it was used here, which is it was on a list of standards that Warner Brothers knew they could use without fear of legal reprisal. All right, that's this little piggy. Thanks for listening.